これ。Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we will be talking the fight that occurred this past Saturday night between Sebastian Fundora and Carlos Ocampo. I will be.、Uh, Giving my thoughts on the fight and why I believe Sebastian Fundora right now is the single most overrated fighter on the planet. Then I will give my predictions of the two biggest fights this upcoming weekend. Another extensive question and answer session, and my historical overview of the twenty-first greatest fighter. Of the last forty-five years, my fellow Boricua, the PR legend Felix Tito Trinidad. But before I begin, I want to remind the listeners out there—I haven't done this in a couple of weeks—that I have a Patreon podcast, a bonus podcast that I do on the Fight Game Media Network's Patreon page. Five dollars per month. The link is in the description of the podcast of this podcast, in which you will get to hear not only my greatest upsets of all time. I've done seven so far. There will be three more before the year ends. A total of ten. That's my project for 2022. The ten greatest upsets in boxing history. You will hear each episode. Detailed what was going on at the time in the world, what was going on in the boxing world at the time, and why these upsets are so monumental that they're among the ten greatest upsets of all time. Real quick, let me give you a rundown of the seven I've done so far. In no particular order, all seven are available on the Patreon、uh, page. That is. Lloyd Hunnigan, September 1986, shocking upset of Donald Curry. The shocking upset of Hakeem Rockman over Lennox Lewis, April of 2001. November 1996, Junior Jones, shocking upset of Marco Antonio Barrera. July of 1978. Villamar Fernandez's shocking upset of Alexis Arguello. November, nineteen seventy-two. Roberto Duran's shocking upset loss to Villamar Fernandez. No, I'm sorry. November nineteen seventy-two. Roberto Duran's shocking loss to Esteban De Jesus. My bad. June 1988, Iran Barkley's shocking knockout upset of Thomas Hitman Hearns, and January of 1994, Frankie Randall's shocking upset of Julio Cesar Chavez. Later this month, I will be doing my eighth greatest upset of all time of the of the ten of I'll be talking about, and that is. 
shockingly, February 1964, Muhammad Ali catches Marcellus Clay that night, and then after he defeated Sonny Liston to win the heavyweight championship of the world, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, the greatest icon in the history of international sports, Muhammad Ali. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, on to the Sebastian Fonduro Carlos Lancampo fight. First thing I want to say is Sebastian Fonduro, yes, he's six foot six, he's a freak. Of a size for the 154-pound super welterweight division. The fact remains, he's not that good. He's a tall, much taller version, a, a giant version of Arturo Gatti. Sebastian Fedora has absolutely no defense whatsoever. The man cannot. The man's best uh, defense is his chin. Is his jaw. He ate shot after shot against a bum in Carlos Ocampo. The same Carlos Ocampo who several years ago got knocked out in the first round by Errol Spence. This guy went 12 rounds with Sebastian Fondura, who's much taller than Errol Spence, who allegedly is supposed to be this gifted 154-pound fighter. He's not gifted. He goes in there, he wings shots, and he outworks you with no defense whatsoever. Yeah, he could beat the Carlos Acampos of the world. He barely survived against Erickson Lubin, okay? He could beat the run-of-the-mill 154-pounders. Wait until he fights the elite fighters like Charlo, like Errol Spence when he moves up, like Terrence Crawford when he moves up, like a Boots Ennis. All of those guys will clobber Funduro with those archaic defensive skills. The man cannot, cannot stop a punch. He can't. He couldn't catch a cold. Get this motherfucker the hell out of here. He's not that good. I am sick and tired of boxing promoters, boxing networks, and boxing officials, the boxing media, trying to tell me something that my eyes will not allow me to be lied to. Fandora is not that good, ladies and gentlemen. He's not that good. I've been watching boxing for 46 years now, since 1977. It's the only sport that I'll be watching from now on. Because I'm not watching any team sports anymore. I'm giving up on that. He's not that good. Period. He let this bum land shot after shot to the body, to the face. Of the, and ladies and gentlemen, Fandora has matchstick legs. The minute he fights an elite fighter with a tremendous body attack, a la Terrence Crawford, a la Jerron Boots Ennis, a la Errol Spence, he's going to get exposed even worse than he was this past Saturday night. The judges had to fight overwhelmingly in favor of of Fandura. I don't see how. Ocampo won at least five rounds right out of the 12. It was much closer than they say it was that they judged. And referee Jack Reese, 
I don't know what the hell was his problem. He told Ocampo's camp late in the fight that they should get fined for uh, allegedly, allegedly, because I didn't see it, uh, trying to waste time or trying to get more time in order for Ocampo to uh, 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 catch, uh, uh, to uh, get some type of second win. And in the ninth round, he went up to Ocampo who was landing as good as he got. Oh, uh, you need to show me something or I'm going to stop the fight. Man, get this guy the fuck out of here, Jack Reese. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. This guy, he's been refereeing for 22 years. Kudos to Al Bernstein, who brought it up, ripped Jack Reese on national television on the Showtime broadcast, and his colleagues... Mr. Mamma Mia Blowhard, Mauro Ronaldo, and Abner, I'm blind, but I still want to box even though I'm washed up and got nothing less left Maris. His colleagues just stood back and did not, did not criticize uh, Reese for his blatant, blatant, unprofessionalism kudos to al bernstein one of the few great boxing analysts out there in the game today him and andre ward are head and shoulders above everybody in the sport today because as i've said over and over again on this podcast boxing announcing are at are at an all time low it's just plain horrible, but Al Bernstein steps up to the plate like he always has. Now, on to my prediction for this Saturday night, October 15th, two major fights. I still might go, um, ladies and gentlemen, my mother right now is in a rehab facility. She's out of danger. She has survived another Round with the Grim Reaper. She's beaten him for a fifth time in her almost 75 years on this planet. So right now she's in a rehab facility to help help her walk uh, better than she did before she went to the hospital. She has a very serious, serious case of arthritis when she was having a hard time walking before her kidneys malfunctioned before she had the seizure, before she had heart failure. She's overcome all that. Now, on her road to recovery, she has to prove to the medical staff that she can walk on her own in case she has to stay by herself for an hour or two at my apartment. So... Now that it looks like, and it's a long, long road for her. I don't know how long she'll be at this facility because the use of her legs is non-existent right now. So there is a shot, 50-50 right now, that I'll be attending the pay-per-view card being held Saturday night at the Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, for uh, to be exact, between Deontay Wilder and Robert Hellenius. 
it could be cheaper to go to the fight than paying for the pay-per-view. My prediction, and this is what I predict, Deontay Wilder with an explosive fifth-round knockout of Robert Hellenius, whose defense is non-existent. He does not have the boxing acumen of a Tyson Fury or of a younger version of Lewis King Kong Ortiz to give Wilder the type of trouble that those type of fighters gave Deontay Wilder. Hellenius, yeah, he throws a lot of punches, but he's right in front of you. There's no movement, no head movement. And Hellenius has gotten hit over and over again the last few years of his career. It won't be any different. Saturday night is Deontay, is Deontay Waller the same fighter he was before the wars he had against uh, Tyson Fury that'll be answered Saturday night um, I think even a past his prime Deontay Wilder will land that right hand and would, will still land that right hand and put Robert Hellenius to sleep so I'm predicting fifth round knockout now down under the rematch between Devin Haney and George Cambosos will be a carbon copy, <laughs> a facsimile of Haney's victory last time against Cambosos, and Haney will win damn near every second of every round to win a 12 round whitewash of George Cambosos. And Haney will retain, will retain his undisputed 135-pound lightweight championship of the world. Now, on to the question and answer session. For those who want their questions answered, first-time listeners, hashtag AskRobSilva, A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A, on Twitter. All right. And then let me go to, uh, I, I forgot to answer these questions last week because I couldn't find them. Now that I found them, I could um, answer the questions from uh, my brother Malcolm on Twitter. And Malcolm asks, first question, is Devin Haney's reign at, at the top of the 135-pound division over with now that Shakur is moving up? This is, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast, so now let me revisit my trajectory for both Haney and Shakur Stevenson. First of all, I believe that will be the biggest fight of the fall next year, 2023. I see Shakur beating one of top ranks uh, 135-pound lightweight contenders before facing Haney. Haney will beat Cambosis this Saturday night, my prediction. Danny will beat Lomachenko sometime in the in the spring, March or April. And then October, November, we will have a 135-pound super fight between Devin Haney and Shakur Stevenson for the undisputed lightweight championship of the world. Malcolm, I will save my prediction for who I think wins that fight when that fight happens. I'm a, I'm going to uh, do that then because you know where I'm leaning. You know who I'm leaning to win, but a lot can happen 
in 12 months. And we're talking about a fight that will occur in 12 months. All right. A lot could happen. And I want to see what these guys look like in their fights in between. How does Haney look against Cambosas in the rematch this Saturday? How does he look against Lomachenko when they fight each other next spring? And how Shakur looks in his very first fight at 135 pounds. Now, who does Shakur fight before he fights up the winner of Haney Lomachenko, which I believe will be Devin Haney? Don't be surprised if Shakur Stevenson fights Richard Comey next. Wouldn't be surprised. That's an easy fight to make, being that Comey is a top-ranked fighter, just like Shakur Stevens. I think that would be a great test for Shakur before fighting for the undisputed lightweight championship of the world. Okay, now on to Malcolm's next question. Malcolm asks, did Demetrius Andrade make a bad decision by giving up his WBO title? Demetrius Andrade has done nothing but make bad decisions the last few years. He's beaten a bunch. It's now, I admit, that the Triple Gs and the Canellos of the world have ducked Andrade over and over again. They have said on record that they refuse to fight Andrade, which is bullshit on their parts, on both fighters' parts. This piggybacks on what Andre Ward said recently on Max Kellerman's Max Unboxing Show. And Max Kellerman was very quiet and did not address it. Andre Ward told, reminded Max Kellerman that when they were both at HBO and Triple G was one of HBO's uh, go-to fighters, the guys that HBO, the Jim Lampley's of the world, were hyping up as the, as the next great middleweight, all-time great. Andre reminded Max that Triple G and his management team didn't want to fight certain fighters. They didn't want to fight the Charlos of the world. They didn't want to fight the Demetrius Andrades of the world. Even back then, when they were billing Triple G as this unbeatable monster, which he's not, the man was defensively flawed his entire career, and he never defeated an elite fighter in his fucking career. Triple G, get that shit the hell out of here. Right? And Triple G refused to fight Andrade. Canelo refused to fight Andrade. And Andrade fought stiff after stiff after stiff. I don't know what uh, Demetrius Andrade is doing with his career right now. He gave up his WBO 160-pound title. Uh, Malcolm, it didn't matter whether or not he kept it because he wasn't going to get a fight with Triple G. Triple G will not fight him. He's now moved up to 168, and he doesn't have anything scheduled at 168. Canelo will never fight Andrade. I don't know what's in store for Andrade. He's past his prime, in my opinion. His best days are beyond him. All I can advise for Andrade is to fight whoever for the next few years, make some money, and retire. Because at least one thing Andrade has never done is suffer the type of punishment most fighters his age, most fighters at his level have suffered. Because he's been one of the most avoided fighters of this era, but he's also been his worst enemy this era. And he's been promoted horribly by Eddie Hearn. Eddie Hearn has this guy 
and Eddie Hearn has the ear of both Triple G and Canelo, and he couldn't force a fight between Canelo and Triple G and Andrade. He stood back and let these guys laugh at Andrade because they know that Andrade would give them hell. Andrade is the type of fighter that will make both those guys look bad, yet Eddie Hearn has been unable to make the fight or fights between Canelo and Triple G versus Andrade. Bad management, bad promoting, and bad decisions by Demetrius Andrade have all led to a career that has been too underwhelming for a talent of his uh, magnitude. Now on to Malcolm's final question. uh, Deontay Wilder says that he wants Fury or Usyk after his next fight. How does the how does it play out if either fight is made? First things first, Wilder has to uh, win win Saturday night at Brooklyn. Um, uh, anything's possible, and Wilder has lost a step and has taken an enormous amount of punishment in his three fights versus Tyson Fury. So we have to see exactly what he has left in the tank. I still think he has enough in the tank to beat a Robert Hellenius. Does he have enough in his tank left to beat an Alexander Usyk? This is a question, um, Malcolm, that is best answered after seeing what happens in Deontay's Wild, Deontay Wilder's fight Saturday night at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York against Robert Hellenius. If he looks lethargic, if he looks punchy, if he loses or struggles to beat Hellenius, we don't need to see those fights. But I will save judgment until Saturday night. Once again, I might be there right now. It's 50-50. Seriously considering going to the fight Saturday night. The tickets I can get are about the same price as the pay-per-view, so I might as well go if I'm going to watch the fight. If I watch the fight, it'll be uh, either on my bootleg device, or showing up at the Barclays Center Saturday night. Um, We will see. Um, I will post on Twitter by Thursday. No, by Friday afternoon I will post. No, by Thursday afternoon, late Thursday afternoon, the day after this podcast comes out. So those listening, at RobertSilver5768, you'll know whether or not I'm going to the Deontay Wilder, Robert Hellenius pay-per-view um, fight live and in person at the Barclays Center. And if I do show up, I will post my uh, location. New listeners out there that are attending the fight can do like my buddy Carl did, like my buddy Gritty tried to do uh, a few weeks back at the Shakur Stevenson Newark homecoming fight and, and meet up and we could meet and talk for a few minutes. All right, now. On to the next question. And this question is from Will Davis. And Will asks, why did Andre Ward only have 32 professional fights? Let me make sure that's the exact question. Because I believe that's the exact question. Yeah, why did Ward only fight 32 times? Will, the reason why Andre Ward only had 32 
pro fights in 13 years of boxing is because for two and a half to three years of his career, he didn't fight because he was in a promotional battle and trying to get out of his contract with Goose and Tudor promotions. Uh, the late Dan Goosen, his brother Joe Goosen, was the main trainer for the Goosen Tudor promotion. You can hear Joe Goosen all the time on on the Fox pay-per-views and the Fox PBC broadcasts. Fumigate the airways with his nonsensical boxing analysis, and he is a fucking cure for insomnia. He's an overbearing bore, and he's a horrible boxing analyst. But one thing Joe Goosen is, is a tremendous boxing trainer. I give him credit for that. His brother Dan Goosen... I don't know what the terms of the original contract he had with Andre Ward, but Andre Ward and Andre Ward's manager, the legendary rap mogul of Rap-A-Lot Records, Jay Prince, who now has managed three fighters who have never lost. Jay Prince is, at one time was Floyd Mayweather's manager throughout his incredible 130-pound title reign. Um... He was Andre Ward's manager throughout his entire career, and he Shakur, he's been Shakur Stevenson's manager throughout Shakur Stevenson's career. Zero losses between these three great fighters under Jay Prince's management. Jay Prince and Andre Ward fought tooth and nail with Goose and Tudor. They had to go to court, and finally, after two, two and a half, almost three years, out of the ring, Andre Ward made his comeback. And that comeback come, come included the two wins over Sergey Kovalev before finally calling it an end to his career. So, Will, that's why he only fought 32 times because the bulk of his prime was spent trying to get out of a bad promotional contract. All right. Now on to Rafael Toro, who has two questions. Okay, let's get to his first question. All right, Rafael Toro asks, where's, where's my question at? Okay, here we go. First question from Rafael. How how would Usyk, Alexander Usyk, measure up in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s against heavyweights and comparable size heavyweights. Usyk beats every cruiserweight not named Evander Holyfield from the 1980s until today. He beats Carlos De Leon. He beats uh, 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 Asio Casio. He beats what's uh, what's what, what, what was my man's name? Um, Rest in peace to, uh, 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 to, to, to the man. Man, ladies and gentlemen, right? John Mormick, he beats John Mormick, who's still alive, but John Mormick lost the first fight. God damn, I attended that fight. I'm getting early signs of dementia here. All right, former undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world that Mormick lost to. It was on the undercard of the Zab Judah 
Carlos Baldemir fight January of 2006 at Madison Square Garden. Oh, he, he he beats O'Neal Bell. He beats uh, he he beats them all. All the good to great cruiserweight David Hay. You name the cruiserweight other than Evander Holyfield. Evander Holyfield is the only cruiserweight in the history of the cruiserweight division that beats Alexander Usyk. Heavyweights of similar size. Yeah, um, he beats Chris Bird. He doesn't beat Evander Holyfield. No, he does not beat Evander. He doesn't beat Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes would jab Usyk to death. Usyk couldn't couldn't compete with the fucking incredible, the greatest heavyweight I've ever seen in my in my lifetime in Larry Holmes. He doesn't beat Larry Holmes. Usyk beats Michael Mora, I believe. Um other heavyweights his size his size. What well, the the main ones Larry Holmes and Evander Holyfield, he doesn't beat. They're greater fighters than Usyk, all right? They will outwork, outjab, outbox Alexander Usyk. Now, uh, he also had a question about Floyd Mayweather, so let me make sure I get that question, get it word. Uh, let me get that question. Let me see where's this at. Where the hell is my 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 questions? By the way, thank you, Will, and, and thank you, Malcolm, and once again, thank you to uh, Raphael. Oh, I'm trying to get this question. So oh, here we go, here we go, here we go. How do you think? Floyd Mayweather would have done from 126 to 140 pounds in the 1980s against the best of each weight class. And I told Rafael I'm going to eliminate 126 pounds because Floyd never fought at a elite level at 126. It was 130 to 140. Okay. So I will start at 130 pounds. And in my opinion, Floyd beats every 130-pound fighter of the 1980s, all right, and every elite fighter, including Alexis Arguello. Arguello will be Floyd's toughest fight because Arguello has had brutal power in both hands, and he was he would always be uh, one shot away from knocking Floyd out. But Floyd, at 130 pounds, was a perfect fighter defensively. Offensively, he would befuddle Arguello because Arguello's biggest problems were always against guys that I could box him. Aaron Pryor, when he decided to box against Arguello, Arguello could do nothing about in the two fights they fought. Philomar Fernandez beat him. Ernesto Marcel beat him. How did all these guys beat Alex Arguello? With movement, jabbing from the outside, making a miss. And that's Floyd did it better than all those guys as a boxer, as a counterpuncher, as the greatest defensive fighter I've ever seen in my lifetime. So he beats Alexis Arguello. And if he beats Alexis Arguello, that means he beats Julio Cesar Chavez. He beats Azuma Nelson. Because Nelson and Chavez had problems with slick boxers. Pernell Whitaker, perfect example. He dominated both. And Floyd would dominate both at 130 pounds. 
Brian Mitchell, greatest South African fighter I've ever seen, would not be able to do anything against Floyd Mayweather. Uh, Rocky Lockridge, Tony the Tiger Lopez, Hector Camacho, all those guys at 130 pounds stand no shot against a prime, perfect fighter at 130 pounds in Floyd Mayweather. 135 pounds. He beats everybody at 135, except Pernell Whitaker. I think Whitaker and Floyd, two similar fighters, one softball, one orthodox. Whew, that's a fight that's tough to score, man. That, that, that's a trilogy. Somebody wins two out of three. Nobody wins all three. Okay, if they fought ten times, one fighter wins five times, the other fighter wins five times. We're talking about two guys who offensively were gifted, defensively, two greatest defensive fighters I've ever seen in my lifetime. That's the only guy that could beat Floyd at 135 from the 1980s. Floyd beats everybody else. Chavez, Camacho, Rosario, Ramirez, Arguello, all those lightweights would not stand a shot against Floyd Mayweather at 135 pounds. And at 140 pounds, in my opinion, the only guy that would have beaten uh, Floyd is Aaron Pryor because Aaron Pryor is the greatest junior welterweight I've ever seen. Nobody could tell me different, all right? Aaron Pryor would put incredible pressure on Floyd, pressure that Floyd had will have never seen in his career. A prime 140-pound Aaron Pryor from 1980 to 1983 was one of the greatest fighters that ever lived, and he would give Floyd hell at 140. Hell. And I'd predict Pryor by late stoppage against Floyd Mayweather. And so that answers that question, and that puts a wrap on this week's Q&A. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to my historical overview of my 21st greatest fighter of the last 45 years, series of articles that I've written on FightGameMedia.com. My latest one, the 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, is up, and that's on Salvador Sanchez. Go to FightGameMedia.com. Check out my list of the 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years. I've done an article going up to number 10. Salvador Sanchez. Today, I'm reading my 21st greatest fighter of the last 45 years article that was published seven to eight months ago on that same website, fightgamemedia.com. And this one is on the Puerto Rican legend, Felix Tito Trinidad. And I write, as I wrote, my father idolized Roberto Clemente. Clemente is the greatest athlete ever to come from my father's Puerto Rican homeland. The only other athlete from Puerto Rico that came close to his love for the legendary Clemente was Felix Tito Trinidad. My father used to tell anyone who listened that Trinidad closely resembled my father's fighting style when he was an amateur boxer in his youth. Old heads from Spanish Harlem and the South Bronx would confirm to me just how lethal my father's fists were as a young man. In the history of boxing, there were maybe a handful of fighters with the offensive repertoire of the 5'11 skinny Coupe Alto Puerto Rico native. His offensive prowess is one of the many reasons he's the 21st greatest fighter of the last 45 years. 
Trinidad's father, Felix Sr., was a solid pro who never made it to the main event level. Early on, he saw that Felix Jr. had all the tools to not only become a better fighter than him, but a possible world-class fighter as well. 16 of Trinidad's first 19 fights happened in his native Puerto Rico before the tender age of 20. Although only 20, he would secure a world title shot against the IBF 147-pound champion Maurice Blocker on June 19, 1993. My father predicted that the 30-year-old Blocker was too skinny and frail to be any challenge to the Puerto Rican prodigy. His prediction proved to be lights out as Trinidad blasted out Blocker in two rounds to become one of the most dominant to begin one of the most dominant reigns in the history of the storied welterweight division. Trinidad's first high-profile title defense occurred in his third defense on, on January 29, 1994, against fellow Puerto Rican star Hector Macho Camacho. Both Papa and I knew that Camacho had absolutely no shot against the power-punching Trinidad. Trinidad fought very patiently, be, patiently behind his left jab and coasted to an easy 12-round decision as Camacho ran and held the entire fight in order to survive. My father was very impressed with Trinidad that night. He observed that Trinidad did not allow Camacho to frustrate him and was content to just use his superior jab and offensive tools to win a lopsided decision. Trinidad's next two title defenses showed his ability to overcome adversity. In both his fights against Yuri Boy Compass and Obacar, Trinidad was hurt and knocked down in the second round. Trinidad after being smacked by his father and trainer Felix Sr. after coming back to the corner, proceeded to settle down and systematically destroy both fighters before putting them out to pasture. After these two tough but satisfying knockouts, my father began comparing Trinidad to one of our all-time favorite fighters, Alexis Arguello. It was Trinidad's length, jab, explosive power in both hands, and composure that my father likened Trinidad to the Nicaraguan legend. Trinidad would face no such adversity as he batted his next eight opponents in one-sided beatings. He then would sign to fight one of the greatest fighters who ever lived, Pernell Whitaker, on February 20th, 1999, in the 13th defense of Trinidad's IBF title. I took my father to see this fight that night as it was held in the boxing mecca of Madison Square Garden. Although we were huge fans of Whitaker, we knew that at, one, at 35 and having to overcome a recent addiction to cocaine, plus being six inches shorter than Trinidad, was much too much was too much to overcome. We were right. Trinidad fought the same disciplined fight he did against Camacho. Trinidad out jabbed and punished Whitaker to the body and winning a very lopsided decision. It was the first time Whitaker would lose a fight that wasn't questionable. After a homecoming in Puerto Rico destruction of Hugo Pineda, Trinidad faced Oscar De La Hoya in what was the biggest welterweight title unification fight since the September 1981 fight between Sugar Ray Leonard and Thomas Hearns. On September 18, 1999, the IBF champion Trinidad met the WBC champion De La Hoya on a hot and muggy night in Vegas. My father just had his vocal cords removed two weeks prior as he was battling stage 4 throat cancer. This was the first major fight we saw together without his ability to verbally communicate. 
Before his vocal cords were, remo were, were removed, my father had expressed confidence in Trinidad winning by decision by out-jabbing and outlanding De La Hoya. Immediately, we saw that Trinidad had totally, aban had totally abandoned the jab. For the first eight rounds, De La Hoya did exactly what he wanted to do as he masterfully outboxed Trinidad. Felix was just following Oscar around, looking to land a huge punch. He finally did hurt Oscar in the ninth round, and Oscar decided to run the clock out by running away the last quarter of the fight. Despite Trinidad winning the last four rounds of the fight, my father wrote down on a piece of paper that he felt Trinidad had lost by at least two rounds. Shockingly, Trinidad was awarded a majority decision. We had both bet uh, $100 on Trinidad to win. We were laughing because after all these years, we finally won a bet we had no business winning. Immediately, Trinidad vacated his 247-pound titles and moved up to 154 pounds. On March 3rd, 2000, Trinidad challenged WBA 154-pound champion David Reed for David Reed's title. Reed was an excellent boxer puncher who my father felt could give Trinidad major difficulty. For the first three rounds, he was correct, as Reed staggered Trinidad and dropped him in the third round. Trinidad didn't panic, as beginning with round four, he began using his lethal left jab to gain control of the fight, a weapon he totally abandoned against De La Hoya. Reed was unable to adjust and began eating Trinidad's thunderous left hooks and right crosses. The fight should have been stopped in the 11th round as Trinidad dropped a defensive Reed three times. Reed somehow survived and lasted until the bell ended the fight in the 12th round. As soon as the fight ended, my father wrote on a piece of paper in all caps, Reed will never be the same. Now, my father passed away April, May, June, July, four months later, but he, so he didn't get to see that his prediction came to fruition as David Reed was a punching bag before retiring just a few years later for the Okay, as a and, that, and look, and exactly what I said, what I wrote, as a result of the punishment dished out by Trinidad, Reed suffered a detached retina and was, and was forced to retire less than two years later at the age of 28. It wouldn't be the last time a fighter would be a shell of himself after suffering a beating at the hands of Trinidad. Trinidad's first defense of his 154-pound title will forever hold a special place in my heart. On July 22, 2000, Trinidad defended against the lightly regarded European super welterweight champion Mamadou Thiam. This will be the last fight my father and I saw together as his throat cancer worsened to the point where we had to hospitalize him two days later. He would finally succumb to the illness on July 30th, 2000 at the way too, age, too young age at the way too young at the way too young age of 52. Trinidad batted Thiam unmercifully from the very beginning, and Thiam suffered the most grotesque-looking swollen right eye. Trinidad, like most seasoned greats, concentrated on Thiam's uh, right eye until Thiam quit late towards the end of the third round. My father beamed with pride watching this fight, as I mentioned earlier. Trinidad was his favorite boxer ever to come out of his homeland. It was only apropos that this would be the last fight he'd ever see. Trinidad's next fight would be a 154-pound unification title fight against the IBF champion Fernando Vargas. Vargas was an excellent power puncher whose defense was severely flawed. 
it was the reason why I didn't feel he posed a serious threat to Trinidad. On the night of December 2nd, 2000, Trinidad came roaring out the gate. He dropped Vargas twice within 45 seconds of the first round with wicked left hooks. I was shocked that Vargas was able to survive the opening standard. Stanza, as Trinidad was one of the greatest finishers in boxing history. Not only did he survive, he was able to knock down Trinidad early in the fourth round and had him in serious trouble. Vargas had continued success until midway through the fight. This is when Trinidad regained control by beginning to concentrate on his left jab. Trinidad, in turn, continued to batter Vargas with debilitating power shots to the head and body off of his jab. Less than 40 seconds to the 12th and final round, Trinidad dropped Vargas with another picturesque left hook. As soon as Vargas got up, he ran into another shotgun left hook that dropped him. At this point in time, referee Jay Nady should have stopped the fight. Instead, Trinidad landed several thunderous bombs for additional 30 seconds before Vargas fell in a heap. The fight was finally over. Until this day, this was the single greatest fight in the history of the 154-pound division. Unfortunately, Vargas paid a huge price for his valor. He would only win six of his next ten fights before retiring. Trinidad immediately vacated his Super Welterweight titles to enter Don King and HBO's middleweight tournament to crown an undisputed champion at 160 pounds. At Madison Square Garden, I was lucky. I was lucky enough to attend all three fights in this tournament. The first, which took place in April of 2001, with the IBF champion Bernard Hopkins winning a workmanlike decision over the WBC champion Keith Holmes. On May 12, 2001, Trinidad faced the WBA champion William Joppy with the win in the face Hopkins for the undisputed 160-pound title. Choppy was a slick-moving boxer whose only shot was to employ the same tactics De La Hoya used in his fight against Trinidad. To be honest, Choppy's left jab was not as fine-tuned as Oscar's, a weapon necessary in order to tame the Puerto Rican power puncher. That night at MSG, a fight in which I attended, Trinidad came out pumping that left jab like, like an AK-47. Choppy had no answer for Tito's razor-like jab, and with seconds left, it, in the, in the first round was blasted by a pristine left hook right cross combination that sent the packed MSG crowd into a deafening roar. Choppy looked like the proverbial deer in the headlights as Trinidad batted him from pillar to post until he dropped him with another booming left hook in the fourth round. Choppy miraculously survived that round. His corner had no business allowing him out for the fateful fifth round. Round five saw Joppy foolishly stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trinidad. Trinidad seemed to hurt Joppy with every bomb he landed until he landed two bazooka right crosses that drove Joppy's head into the canvas. Joppy was got up but was stumbling like a wino before referee Arthur McCanty Jr. wisely stopped the fight. The MSG crowd, which had an incredible number of Puerto Ricans and in attendance was as loud as I ever heard it when Trinidad finished Joppy off. The stage was set for the undisputed middleweight champion of the world between Trinidad and, and Hopkins. The 9-11 World Trade Center bombings forced the September 15, 2001 undisputed middleweight title fight to be, late, to be delayed two weeks. It, it just delayed the inevitable. The inevitable. 
Despite being 36 and 8 years older than Trinidad, Hopkins was just too big and slick for the Puerto Rican superstar. At six foot one, Hopkins was two inches taller and a natural middleweight. After an uneventful filling out opening round, Hopkins began to dominate the fight with his left jab, an incredible display of his defense. As I sat with fellow Puerto Ricans, I was amazed at Hopkins' innate ability to know what Trinidad was going to do before Trinidad did. In one of the greatest boxing masterpieces of all time, Hopkins finally got to show the world just how special of a fighter he was. Going into the 12th and final round, Trinidad had the look of a dead man walking. Hopkins jumped on him and batted him until finishing off his Picasso-like performance with a sizzling right cross. Trinidad got up wobbly at the count of eight. Felix Sr. entered the ring to save his father from further damage. I was relieved that my father wasn't around to see his favorite Puerto Rican fighter of all time suffer such a brutal beating. Just like the beatings he administered to Vargas and Reed resulted in both fighters never being the same in the ring, Trinidad suffered the same fate after the one-sided beating he was given from Hopkins. After looking listless in his next fight against the very mediocre Hassin Sharifi and knocking out the perennial punching bag to the stars, Ricardo Mayorga, Trinidad fought Ronald Winky Wright on May 14, 2005. Winky completely dominated Trinidad by landing his booming right jab over and over again. The 32-year-old Trinidad once again looked like a shot fighter as he did absolutely nothing significant in the fight. Winky won every minute of the fight and winning a lopsided decision. Trinidad announced his retirement. Less than three years later, Trinidad made an ill-advised comeback against another fighter who should have stayed retired, Roy Jones. On the night of January 19th, 2008, Trinidad and Jones, who had just turned 35 and 39 years old respectively, stepped into the Master Square Garden ring several years after their elite boxing skills had left them. Jones had enough left to knock down Trinidad twice to win a unanimous decision. Trinidad once again suffered incredible punishment in a losing effort. Finally, he came to the realization and finally retired for good. Felix Tito Trinidad was one of the most fearsome and destructive fighters in the history of the sport. He had a complete arsenal with one-punch knockout power in both hands. Despite being knocked down several times in his career, Trinidad always got up and made you pay for having the audacity to knock him down. Add these skills to his incredible 15 successful defenses of his 147-pound title, and we can see why Trinidad is the 21st greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Trinidad would, would, would retire with an incredible record of 42-3 and three with 35 knockouts. He set a standard for Puerto Rican fighters that will always stand the test of time. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, be blessed and be a blessing. <laughs>